This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The viewpoints expressed by the host are her own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News. I'm Nina Turner. In another segment in this program, we discussed how Coretta Scott King, Mrs. Coretta Scott King, was a full partner in Dr. King's work and how she worked to preserve and extend his legacy. To learn more about Mrs. Coretta Scott King's achievement as a champion of civil rights and human rights, we are joined by Reverend Dr. Noel L. Erskine, a professor of theology and ethics at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. Dr. Erskine, thank you for being here. Thank you very much and look forward to this conversation. And we do as well. Now, Dr. Erskine, you had the opportunity to work side by side with Mrs. King in teaching the class the theology of Martin Luther King Jr. at Candler. How did this happen? Yes, thanks for that question. Um, I recall it was sometime I think perhaps about 1979, they had a groundbreaking ceremony at Emory University for a new chapel, and there on campus was Mrs. King. I remember Jimmy Carter was there as well. And it dawned on me just being in the presence of Mrs. King that what a wonderful opportunity it would be to co-teach a class with her on the theology and the legacy of her husband. And so um, with the blessing of the dean of the school, I approached Mrs. King with the idea and she liked it. So she asked, what are you people at Emory going to call me? And I said, the dean suggested um, you would be church woman in residence. And she said, what about distinguished professor? <laughs> and that was what we called her. So she came to Emory and um, spent um, two semesters, one in, um, I think, 1980 and one in 81. So two years um, teaching and being with us and engaging students and sharing so much with us. 
So that's sort of the genesis, the genesis of that relationship. And it is, I mean, without Mrs. Coretta Scott King's determination and dedication, we would not have an MOK holiday, Dr. Erskine. I mean, she, can you talk to us a little bit about, remind some folks, there'll be some people listening to us who remember that as if it was yesterday. There'll be some folks who will be hearing this very story for the first time. Tell us about the obstacles she faced and how she overcame them to make sure that we have a Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Yes, we we forget that um, when Martin was killed and buried, it's for many of us, for many people, it was over. It was really over, and and she kept that flame alive and. She 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 was able to make relationships with the White House and 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 it's humbling to remember that it was Ronald Reagan with all his falls. It's humbling to remember it was Ronald Reagan that got the birthday going. You would have thought Jimmy Carter would have done it, but maybe he was waiting for the second term. <laughs> you know, presidents don't try to do too much in the first term. I bet Jimmy had that for the second term, but but Ronald Reagan got that going. And without Mrs. King's relationship with the White House and Mrs. King's, you know, agitation and, and, and all the work she did, it would never have happened. Remember, even when he died, we couldn't even get his body to be honored at, 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 at the Georgia House. You know, I mean, King was so unpopular at that time. You know, and and racism was still king in Georgia. Oh yeah, Dr. Erskine. I mean, people. Yet we, lest we forget, he was. You know, the poll that was done. I think it was done by Gallup. He was one of the. You know, his favorability ratings were abysmal, uh, particularly among white Americans, but not much better in the black community too. So we need to tell the truth about that as well. It wasn't just white Americans; it was black Americans too. That after after his 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 his, his critique of the Vietnam War, uh, exactly a year before he was assassinated at the Riverside Baptist Church, um, even his close associates—we won't name some of them—but even some of the close associates told him he had gone too far. And that last year was one in which men, uh, Dr. King really suffered depression. And, um, you, you know, began to tell folks, take your money, take your money out of the, 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 the white banks, put your money in black banks, you know, don't buy no more of that milk you've been buying, you know, don't buy no more of that bread you've been buying, you know, because they're not treating God's children fairly, you know. So so it, it, it was really a, a, a terrible time for Dr. King. You know, and um, Mrs. King, out of the ashes, so to speak, she created this beautiful memory we now have and fresh ways in which we can talk about Dr. King again. But but Mrs. King made a lot of that possible. Yes, she did. And thank the Lord that she did that. And Dr. Erskine, your point about Dr. King, you know, was more palatable to some of the power structure when he stayed on the civil rights journey. But yes. when he started to, and barely, barely, barely palatable then, but when he stepped into the militarism, materialism, yes. 
racism and poverty all at the same time. It was more than the status quo could take. That's correct. Yeah, people need to, this was not just a, it was certainly was not an easy journey for Dr. King. And when you are a visionary, when you go further than what the status quo power structure wants, it entangles you, it ensnarls you in ways that make it even that much harder for you to do what you do. But yet he persisted anyway. You know, and it's interesting because at that point in class, Mrs. King would always remind the class, she would say, I, I am honored you're all talking about my husband as a theologian. And I know he was a theologian because he did a PhD in systematic theology at Boston University. But in his heart, she said, he was really a minister. In his heart, he was a pastor. And, and, and in that Riverside address he gave on Vietnam, Dr. King said, I can't segregate my conscience. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't you, you know, cry peace when there's no peace. You know, or boys are not honored in 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 in, in Georgia. You know, they can't vote in Georgia, but you send them off to Vietnam to fight. Yeah, so so Dr. King got it. I, I think I think I think the end the end began when he when he came out in that with that Vietnam Vietnam speech. Yeah. No, the power structures that was more than they could take, and you know, similarly. My, the, one of the greatest boxers of all time, Muhammad Ali, albeit in a different way than Reverend King, but they were definitely preaching from the same, you know, from the same hymnal, so to speak, in Muhammad Ali's refusal to fight in the Vietnam War, very much similar to some of the same reasons why Dr. King called it out. So you have these touch points where Folks are waking up to that and the power that a Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had as a moral voice, a moral beacon. And then you have this very charismatic uh, boxer uh, who is really setting the world ablaze, standing up to say the sacrifice I will make. You know, I'm not going. You can take my title. You put me in prison and all all the things that this country did to destroy, try to destroy Muhammad Ali. You know, both of those men really. Uh, they they really mirrored, you know, what what they 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 practiced what they preached, so to speak. They were willing to make the ultimate sacrifices for what you're they right. Believed. They're both the greatest of all times, as Muhammad Ali would say. <laughs> yeah, definitely the greatest of all times. Oh my God, indeed! And I, I it's a beautiful thing that, that their spirits still resonate in uh, some 21st century freedom fighters today, which I know both men would want to have happen. That's how you build legacy. So when we come back, we'll talk with Reverend Dr. Erskine about his study of Dr. King's work as a theologian, which led to the creation of his book, King Among the Theologians. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner, Reverend Dr. Noel Erskine, a professor of theology and ethics at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, is the author of King Among the Theologians, an investigation into the major influences on Martin Luther King Jr.'s theology. 
Dr. Erskine, how much of King's theology was influenced by the time and place in which he lived? Thank you. That's a lovely lead question. That um, Dr. King was, at his very core, a theologian of justice, a theologian of love, and a theologian of hope. Um, those trinity, that trinity of virtues, justice, love, and hope, really set the context uh, for his theology. And two, two texts that were pivotal for Dr. King, Micah 6 and ver verse 8, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, love kindness, and walk with God? So, so he always would go back to that text. And then there's another one in Amos 5.24, let justice roll down like waters. He would repeat that over and over again. So um, the, the, the civil rights movement was really about justice. The bus boycott was not merely because, you know, of the action of Mrs. Rosa Parks. The, Mrs. Parks' action precipitated what led to the boycott. It was the culmination of a series of injustices and indignities, you know, when black people had to sometimes stand in the bus when there were empty seats, you know, place their fares in the front door and go around the back door to get in. I read Mrs. Sparks' um, autobiography, and um, I, I didn't grow up in America, so I was quite surprised to learn that, you know, people would put their fare in the front door and then have to come out. And she said, when you try to get around to the back, the driver sometimes left you out there. And she said that driver that day was one she recognized who had done that to her. <laughs> so there was something going on with, with Mrs. Parks and, 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 and that bus driver. It had it that day, Dr. Erskine. Yes. <laughs> you, know, when, you know, a strong woman, those of us who have been raised, you know, with, with black parents, we know something about a strong woman who says, I'm not moving, I'm not getting up. <laughs> you know, so so Dr. King said said you know the, the the justice issue was always on the front burner. You know, um, the whole question of treating God's children right and being fair. So so at his core, he he was a theologian of justice, justice for the poor. You know, and justice is making right what is wrong. You know, there was so much that was wrong. You know, we talked about segregation. You know, we talked about, you know, the indignities. And, and Dr. King used to like to every now and then remind us when he first became aware of racism, you know, that growing up there, there was a neighbor who had two little boys and he would play with them. And after a while, they wouldn't come out and play with him. You know, and his mother had to sit him down and explain to him what was going on in America. You know, so in a sense, he, he had a touch of that. Um, firsthand, but um, certainly he wanted justice to roll down like waters. And then love, love, love was a, 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 a central uh, key uh, for, 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 for Dr. King. So he always pointed out that when he began um, to plan the, the, the protest in Montgomery, he, he didn't begin with Gandhi, but he began with Jesus. Of course, later on, it was Jesus and Gandhi, but he began with a sermon on the Mount, you know, where Jesus says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, and Dr. King said um, at, at the core of his understanding of justice and his understanding of love is that um, God wanted us to love the enemy. And, and, and that's what he was talking about in that last speech or that speech the, 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 at the Riverside Church. You know, when he said, when a bomb explodes in Vietnam, it explodes in America too, you know. So um, love, to love the enemy, because, because the problem he had with war was that he wanted, he wanted to be reconciled to the enemy. His whole theology of reconciliation was, as Jesus said, what benefit is there if you just love those who love you? Yeah, that's easy. Yeah, you're called to love those who hate you. That whole notion of the the phrase that Dr. King popularized, beloved community, was some of what you were saying, is that the conception of this community that Dr. King had in mind? Nicely said. That that was the apex, that was the goal. That was the goal of of all of this practice of justice and the practice of love. It it, it would take us to that hope the hope of the beloved community, a community in which people weren't judged by the color of their skin or not, not, not even, not merely even by the content of their character, but, 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 but even if they didn't have any character, you were still called to love them because, because for Dr. King in the end, they represented what he called the Imago Dei, the image of God, God's spirit indwelled them. And so, and, 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 and so for Dr. King in the end, um, the beloved community was not just about being black or being white, but um, there was something. There was something beyond being black and white. You, you, in in one way you affirmed it, and in another way you transcended it. You affirm that you are black. You affirm you are white. You affirm you are Indian. You affirm you are transgendered. Whatever you, you affirm, all of that. But then you transcend it by recognizing that at your core. You are a daughter and you're a son of God. At your core, God's image indwells you. At your core, you are loved by God. So at that core, that, that God connection is everything. It, it's what binds us all together. And that, you know, the, a community where everyone is cared for, where there is no poverty, hunger, or hate. It really sounds utopian, Dr. Erskine. When you and I are talking about this, people hear us, a community, that kind of community where care and there's no poverty, there's no hunger, there's no hate. Was Dr. King, because, you know, a lot of times people will banty about this word, particularly politicians, when they don't really want to deal with that, the word pragmatic. Was Dr. King pragmatic in his understanding that all sectors of society, whether government or academia, where you navigate academia and the church, nonprofits, popular culture, would have a role in achieving the beloved community? Yeah, the beloved community was the goal. You're right. It, 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 it was utopian. But at the same time, um, if we could learn to love one another, and as, as Jesse Jackson would often say, if we would level the playing field. If, and you know, as Dr. King would say, we have the resources. We have enough in America um, that... There really shouldn't be any children going to bed hungry at night. And 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 Nina, my, my question is how comes 
America is such a wonderful Christian country. We have so many churches. And how comes we have so many people in jail? Yes, yes, sir. I am told, I am told that we have more people in jail than China does. We do, it is true. But how is that possible? China has 1.4 billion, with a B, billion people. We have 320 million? We don't even have a quarter of what China has. So how could we, how could we have so many people in jail and we have so many churches? So something is wrong. And I think that's what Dr. King was pointing to. And part of what's wrong is we don't really love each other. And that's hard, but we don't even practice justice. No, we do not. I mean, in the final analysis, everything that you are saying is very true. And as we contemplate Dr. King's theological legacy more than 50 years after his death, what is the one thing we should carry in our hearts as we work, and key word, work, to embody the principles by which Dr. King abided in his life and in his death? It comes back, you know, to the good old Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And Jesus puts it, he says, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That old golden rule, do unto others as you would, they should do to you. So simple yet so profound. Yes. And that golden rule that you made reference to, it really it streams through all of the major religions. It is. In various ways. Wow, Dr. Erskine, you have certainly put a lot on our mind. We are so glad and honored to have had you spend some time with us. Dr. Erskine is a professor of theology and ethics at Candler School of Theology at Emory University and the author of King Among the Theologians. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Nina. I really am grateful. No, we are grateful to you. And we'll be back with more of the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. One of the most troubling aspects of examining the life of Martin Luther King Jr. is the disturbing fascination and what I would call paranoia that J. Edgar Hoover, the 48-year leader of the FBI, had with the civil rights movement and with Dr. King in particular. Here is some audio from the Sam Pollard documentary, MLK FBI. You know, when you construct a man as a great man, there's nothing almost more satisfying than also seeing him as the opposite. Tapes from the hotel rooms, FBI reports, those are pieces of information that we shouldn't have. The FBI was most alarmed about King because of his success. J. Edgar Hoover is famous for saying that he feared the rise of a black messiah. The FBI says it's clear. Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous Negro in America, and we have to use every resource at our disposal to destroy him. To learn more about the documentary, you can go to mlkfbi.com. That's mlkfbi.com. 
Joining us now is Dr. Trevor Griffey, co-founder of the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project and a lecturer in U.S. History and Labor Studies at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Griffey, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, let's start with J. Edgar Hoover. Can you describe his reign over the FBI or over the Federal Bureau of Investigations for almost five decades? And what was the FBI like under his direction? Sure. So the the Federal Bureau of Investigation emerges out of the uh, predecessor organization called the Bureau of Investigation, and it is tasked with enforcing federal law. And um, uh, Hoover is tapped as a young man who had been working in the Bureau of Investigation to head uh, it to head it as an agency and ultimately transform it uh, after scandals following the first Red Scare had caused controversy about whether federal law enforcement was going too far in targeting uh, political dissidents, um, in particular labor radicals, critics of capitalism and uh, critics of World War One, And so Hoover came into power uh, knowing that there was um, not unity in the American public around what the mission of federal law enforcement should be. Um, and in kind of coming in in that way, he sought to chart a path for the organization that would be, be seen as objective, nonpartisan, based on scientific standards, etc., And he was fairly savvy at using the media, especially in the 1930s and 1940s, to promote an image of the FBI as very capable law enforcement agents who were were models of citizenship and who promoted um, good governance um, and were sort of beyond uh, repute and not people who were motivated by political bias. So that was the image and the ideology Uh, But the fact is that part of enforcing federal law also involves um, what you would call domestic intelligence. That is to say the gathering of information, not for law enforcement purposes, but as part of um, preventing espionage on U.S. soil. Uh, So especially following foreign agents and also investigating potential threats to what is Uh, sometimes vaguely called national security. So while during the late 1920s and early to mid-1930s, Hoover was uh, mostly famous as a bureaucrat and as someone who uh, sought to clamp down on bank robberies during the Great Depression, as war developed in Europe, and especially during World War II, the Federal Bureau of Investigation gained a lot of new powers to in, to engage in domestic intelligence. And these powers, rather than being temporary, were made permanent during the Cold War. And so Hoover also oversaw the expansion of the Federal Bureau of Investigation into having thousands of agents engaged in domestic intelligence work. That is to say, not just focused on law enforcement and enforcing federal law, but gathering information about various activities taking place in the U.S. And some of those activities were overtly political. And the reason is because 
starting in the late 1930s and then through the 1940s, but with a precedent that had been established during and after World War I, United States federal policy was explicitly anti-communist and treated people who advocated uh, alternatives to capitalism as threats to national security and as possible foreign agents. Stay tuned. We'll have more from Dr. Trevor Griffey right after this. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. We continue now our conversation with Dr. Trevor Griffey, about the FBI's relentless pursuit of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. While people are aware of Martin Luther King uh, becoming a spokesperson for a bus boycott led by African-American women in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 and 56, and this kicking off a wave of direct action protests, there were protests in the late 1930s and 1940s against racial segregation as well. But that Black freedom struggle was connected to uh, the expansion of the NAACP and to the labor movement. And what Hoover was able to do at Congress's behest, this was not necessarily politically unpopular, was to use the power of the federal government to put pressure on the NAACP to purge radical members, including W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, the prominent African-American scholar, um, and also to get the NAACP to purge whole chapters on the West Coast where left-wing activists might be involved. And this shifts the politics of the Black freedom struggle towards a more professional and less grassroots kind of orientation. And so even before Martin Luther King comes on the scene, Hoover has been involved in shaping American politics in the name of anti-communism. And so as Martin Luther King emerges as a spokesperson for a new uh, Southern-based, Christian-led, nonviolent direct action campaign to desegregate the United States. Hoover is approaching it within both the ideological lens of anti-communism, as well as this sort of suspicion of any mass movement as potentially disruptive and undermining the U.S. role in the Cold War. And, um, and that's above and beyond his individual racism and conservatism. And so in some ways, um, he had enormous power at his disposal, but it also meant that as King became a more prominent leader, it was inevitable that the FBI would at least investigate, uh, is King working with communists? Uh, is he being influenced by communists? Uh, are foreign nations pulling the strings of the black freedom struggle in the United States? These are some of the initial questions that not only informed the way federal law enforcement treated King and the Black Freedom Movement, but they also gave federal law enforcement the legal authority to do so. You know that uh, Reverend King, he, he had a formative relationship with uh, Stanley Levinson, who was considered to be a communist by the FBI. And Levinson raised money with one of the greats, uh, Rustin Bayard and another great, Ella Baker, to support civil rights activism in the South and then later became a trusted advisor to Dr. King. Tell us about that relationship and what the FBI concluded about Dr. King as a result. 
Sure. So the FBI, as part of its investigations, never finds evidence either, one, that King was himself a foreign agent or acting on the behest of a foreign agent, uh, or two, that he even was an anti, that he was even a communist. Um, this was all fairly obvious. There were people who had been members of the Communist Party uh, or who um, even might still have been members of the Communist Party who were working with King. Um, and, and so one of them, as you identify, is Stanley Levison. Levison had been a, a Communist Party leader in the United States. He claimed to have left the Communist Party, um, but according to f- somewhat recently released FBI files, there is evidence that he remained a Communist Party member through the 1960s, and he was a close ally of and advisor of Martin Luther King. In addition, there was an activist named Jack O'Dell, a prominent Black Freedom Movement activist, editor of Freedom Ways in the 1960s. He was a member of the Communist Party. And then Bayard Rustin, one of the most important Black Freedom Movement activists of the 20th century, had been a member of the Communist Party in his youth in the 1930s, had left the Communist Party and embraced a more nonviolent direct action and social change. And he also was an advisor to King. And so the FBI took this information and they sought to um, actually try to undermine King's influence with then President John F. Kennedy. And they told Kennedy and his attorney general, his brother, Robert Kennedy, that King was interacting with communists, which he thought was an opening for potential influence, even though he couldn't prove it. And therefore, King was actually forced to distance himself from um, Levison and to fire Jack O'Dell, um, even though King had no objections to the kind of advice they had provided. And there was no sense that they had violated any laws, but this was just on the mere inference that they could be used as foreign agents somehow. And so King is not just wrestling with Hoover or the FBI. He's really wrestling with the fact that this is a very repressive time in American history. And there are constant suggestions and allegations that even engaging in nonviolent direct action may be un-American. And so after the March on Washington, William Sullivan uh, the FBI's director of intelligence, uh, they they labeled, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the, quote, most dangerous uh, Negro in America. What does that tell you about the fear of Dr. King and just the overall impact of the civil rights movement itself and how that aroused such virile opposition uh, at the hands of the FBI? So up until the March on Washington, uh, most of Hoover's conduct vis-a-vis Martin Luther King was legal, if aggressive. It was, uh, you know, allowed under the Constitution in the name of anti-communism to assess whether there might be foreign agents around. But as you point out, part of the power of King's rhetoric at this time in responding to this kind of criticism is he's having to remind Americans about what even America is supposed to be and what its principles are. And so it's not just a a movement for racial justice. It's a movement to even have a a social movement at all. There's sort of two things at at play. The first is that the United States is taking a sanitized version of its own history and presenting itself as a world leader of democracy against communism. And so King invoking the rhetoric of democracy 
to push for change within the United States is very powerful. The second thing is that King is aligning his politics in solidarity with global decolonization. And his going to Washington, D.C. as part of a march on Washington that is nonviolent calling for a civil rights bill is both about domestic policy, but it's about him ascending to a, a place that is globally very important in this moment to suggest that the challenge to white supremacy needs to be part of this moment. Hoover was an autocrat and he has a lot of power over his advisors and he can fire people or move people around at will. And so the letter that you're describing in which the director of intelligence for the FBI says, oh, you're right, J. Edgar Hoover. You're right, Martin Luther King is a threat. This letter comes in after the March on Washington and they say, I now see that similar to Fidel Castro, who people supported as going against corrupt powers in Cuba before uh, he, you know, the revolution allowed him to create a, a communist state, that King could be like that. And therefore, he, he is the most dangerous Negro in America because he has political power but could be manipulated in some way. We'll have more from Dr. Trevor Griffey right after this. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. We continue now our conversation with Dr. Trevor Griffey about the FBI's relentless pursuit of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. One of the things that is specific to King's case is that the FBI, the FBI recorded King having sex with women outside of wedlock. And even though the FBI destroyed a lot of personally damaging material on very prominent people in American life after J. Edgar Hoover died in 1972, they did not destroy the personally damaging invasion of privacy materials they collected on King. And so Clarence Jones, King's former attorney, sued to try to get that material destroyed. And unfortunately, uh, the judge in that case ruled that it would be just uh, basically held out of the public record for 50 years um, and that would, would come out in the public record in 2027 when everybody ostensibly would be dead. Uh, the issue is, is in some ways what feels like indecency. And by that, I mean, these recordings never should have been made. The permission to get them was under uh, false pretenses. Uh, they were largely used as part of an illegal attempt to disrupt the black freedom struggle. And they may have even been preserved as a form of attempting to undermine King's legacy. J. Edgar Hoover was certainly known for having Hoover files, you know, different folks and polls and the ways to keep people in line and, and to keep his power. You know, he was very shrewd. My heart really aches for his family, you know, because although the judge said the people who participated would be dead, he didn't give a lot of thought to the generations uh, within the, the King family itself and others who were very close to Dr. King and his family and how the impact of the release of those tapes would, you know, would have on them. But I agree with you, Dr. I don't think it's going to stain his reputation one bit because we do live in a world that is not as prudish 
you know, as it was in the 20th century or even the 19th century when it comes to these types of matters. But it is uh, disheartening to know that that is uh, going to be released. Any final thoughts? I do. Um, but yes, I want to say I'm, I'm grateful to have been invited. I appreciate this conversation. Um, I think I think listening to you, I realize that it's also very possible that if these recordings are made available to the public, and even if they're made widely accessible, it may be that the majority of people who listen to them uh, relearn what a what a jerk J. Edgar Hoover was, if that makes sense. Like that, that it may not, it may not still work out in, in his favor and it may raise critical questions. It may raise critical questions that get them to go back in time and say, how did this ever come to be? And hopefully that can help them think through this uh, somewhat dark period in American history. Indeed. Well, Dr. Trevor Griffey, co-founder of the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor History Project and lecturer in U.S. History and Labor Studies at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you so very much. And stay tuned. We'll have more. This is the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.